1: Gordon here. Happy 2023. Look, for today's episode of Rewind with Besa, I want to take a moment to look back on some of my favorite moments that happened in 2022. I got six good moments for you guys. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into this intro and you already know we're going to get right into my top six. My first moment that I'm going to have you guys check out is with Miss Margaret Avery. For those of you guys that don't know, Margaret Avery is the one who played Suge Avery in The Color Purple. And during the interview, we talked about how she actually had a hard time getting some acting gigs and even a manager after playing her role. And she also talks about how it's very, very important for us to have more people that look like us in these rooms to where, you know, they're able to green light these films that actually star us. Check out what Miss Margaret Avery had to say, and then I'll come back with our next moment.
2: I don't know the answer to that one, but I do know that there have been actors of color uh before me who were prepared but were not given the opportunity because of color. Mm-hmm. Uh why was why was Cleopatra uh uh starring uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Cleopatra was black. Yeah. But they, you know, with us not being in any decision-making positions at that time, and even now we need to be more in, to green light a film, to green light what kind of casting. Dorothy Dandridge, our beautiful woman, who inspired me to become an actor. She could have been a bigger star. She should have her picture on a oh. ship. Uh, But what happened to her and the days that my dear, dear Cicely Tyson, those years, there were years that she didn't work. I was wondering what happened to her. It wasn't because there wasn't uh, work that she could have done. It was the opportunity to do that work. So after *Colored Purple, and I'll just throw this in, Mm -hmm. after *Colored Purple, I couldn't even get a manager. I went around trying to get a manager and say, and the manager was saying, well, what can I do with you? I I thought, uh, help me get work. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what are we we gonna put you in? Remember, we didn't have our Spike Lee's and all the wonderful women of color directing now. And there was nothing there. Eight years prior, there was the wonderful film Founder that Paul Winfield and Cicely Tyson starred in. If any of you saw that, I mean, it's a classic. If you haven't seen it, see it. And it was all about family strengths and love for one another. And it was a very positive film and very positive for our our men of color. So when *Colored Purple came out, you would think that there would have been something for us but the only person that that gained from the color purple at female was Whoopi because she had a three picture deal. She mm. went from the color purple to um, it wasn't the one that she got. I think it was Lightning something, uh, but it was three pictures, and she was very talented as a comedian. So she hooked up with the other white very established comedians. And did I? Uh, uh, they went around and raised money for some fund. It was Robin Williams and another comedian. Um, so she was able to get her career really going. And then Oprah, she was already a star in in Chicago with her one her show that beat out other people, and it became syndicated during the time that color purple was being released so everybody was thinking oh isn't uh isn't it wonderful that oprah got her show because of the color purple no she was a big star in chicago for years with her own show so i'm saying now what's so wonderful is that there is opportunity there's opportunity out there. When you see our wonderful women of color directing and just just to be able to turn the channel off of a black film that you don't like and and turn to something else on Netflix and Hulu and all these others, Uh, young people have a wonderful time now. The only thing, as I said before, We still don't have people in those green light positions Mm. of control in the studios to be able to green light this, this, this picture, because we have a lot of wonderful stories that never get green lighted. That
1: makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I forget what show it was recently, but someone was upset that it wasn't uh, done by someone black. Oh, I think it was a woman king people were saying that they were upset about that one because it
2: wasn't Well, let me accurate. tell you this. Color purple would never have been done if it wasn't for Steven Spielberg. He was the only director on of all the studios mm-hmm. that agreed to do that because he was the only one he was the only one that Quincy Jones who 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 uh, mm-hmm. pushed the film and was going around trying to sell the film the idea. He couldn't get anybody but Steven Spielberg. There, there were no blacks that had that kind of power that the, that the studios would allow or to trust to do a film. So before they start complaining about the white person doing it, what you need to do is start trying to push how can we get blacks in those positions that green light that film.
1: I'm not going to hold you. The fact that I interviewed Margaret Avery is pretty freaking dope. I'm not even going to hold you guys, all right? Anyway, we're going to keep it going. My next moment that I want to highlight from 2022 is when I interviewed Travis Thompson, okay? One thing I love about interviewing Seattle artists is I'm able to talk to them about the support that they get locally. And, you know, just people in Seattle kind of having like a crab and a barrel type of mentality, which in my opinion, I could be wrong. I feel like it's changed a lot over the years. I don't feel like it's as bad, but there definitely was a point and there's definitely been a time where a lot of these artists were not getting the respect locally that they actually get outside of the city. So I talked to Travis Thompson about that and he was like, y'all need to have some pride. Check this out.
3: In my head, it's always been like, Seattle I wouldn't even say it's crabs in the bucket but it's just like no one's ever satisfied nothing's ever cool enough for anybody you know what I'm saying and everyone wants to feel like their version of Seattle if it's not being represented then it's not it and it's like but when you go to like the Bay Area or something like there's so many artists that have laid like a blueprint for how this how how like the different levels of this game go you know what I'm saying Seattle doesn't really have that so it's either you're the thing or you're lame there's no where to exist in the middle in Seattle So I just think as a city, we need to come together more and take pride. Like people are like, even I'll see a viral video from someone from Seattle go viral on TikTok. And then all the comments are people from Seattle shitting on Seattle. And it's like, have some pride, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like kind of like have some local, like, I don't know, be proud to be from here because there's definitely dope things going on. And if you don't feel like they're dope, then be dope. And if you feel like your version of the city isn't being represented, then please go put something out and contribute. You know what I'm saying? But we're not going to get anywhere if constantly everything is cool for like three months and then we're over it. You know what I'm saying? Like, even like, was there a real moment where Blueberry fago, the whole city was excited about it? No, that song's just as big as Nirvana songs. And regardless of how you feel, respect numbers, respect movements. You know what I'm saying? So like at the end of the day, yeah, our people in Seattle, crabs in a barrel, but The same people saying that are the same ones calling things lame. The same ones being like, oh, that event is cooked. We don't do that no more. We did that last summer. And it's like, what are you doing, bro? What are we doing out here? Like, we're not going to get anywhere. Like, I wouldn't even say it's crabs in a barrel. I'd say like crabs is crabs who are too cool for the barrel. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what no one's ever satisfied. So like that shit's frustrating. But at the end of the day, the fan base is here. The cool kids just talk the fan base they don't they're not on twitter they're not on insta they don't really care the people who are really showing out for these things are going to show out so as long as you find them you're cool but yeah the scene of it all gets very corny and embarrassing sometimes you know what i mean
1: i know that's right <laughs> I freaking love Travis Thompson because anytime I've done an interview with him and I've only done them twice and I've watched some of his other ones, he just keeps it real. And honestly, I feel like artists like that are the best and frankly, my favorite ones to interview. Now, as we keep it moving, my next clip is going to be with Amanda Morgan. Okay, I enjoyed interviewing Amanda because for one, she's from Tacoma. Two, she has a black ballerina. And yes, there's starting to be more black ballerinas, but we really need that representation, right? She ended up being the first black woman to play the Sugar Plum Fairy just a couple months ago. I want to say it was actually last month at McCall Hall and I was actually there and able to see it live. In this particular clip, we're talking about how Amanda ended up getting her principal position, even though she wasn't actually able to audition because she broke her foot. And I also asked her, have you gotten used to being one of the very few black women in the room? Check out what Amanda had to say. But
4: yeah, so I broke my foot, actually. Okay, now, and now, 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 I was
1: going to ask you about that. How did this happen?
4: Yeah, so I was doing what we would call a double soda boss, where you okay. jump in the air and you go around twice. In a jump. Kind uh-huh. of like, you know, when you see the figure skaters go up yeah. like they go on ice, it's like doing that, but without any ice and without any skates. Okay. And you're a little less dangerous. At least it's supposed it's to be. Adla- it's pretty dangerous. <laughs> usually I would say ballerinas don't tend to do that step really? as much. It's usually more the flat dancers or the men that do that step. Gotcha. But I was being a little bit of a show off and I was very confident back then. <laughs> and I went for it and I was able to do them back then, but I went for it and then I fell and broke my foot. And uh, that week was when uh, my director, Peter Bull was kind of like letting people know if they're going to get hired or not or if he, oh my th- God. he's kind of deciding. And so I showed up the next week with a big red cast up to my knee.
1: You're like, I'm still coming, though. <laughs> yeah, like I was like,
4: I can't dance. I honestly thought I was like, I this might be the end for me. Like, because a lot of times when you get injured, it's, I mean, you miss an opportunity. Yeah. Like, you know, like that's a really important time to kind of be seen. Um, And he took a chance on me and told me that uh, he was still gonna save an apprentice contract for me over people that weren't even injured, so many people. So I was like, (laughs) and on top of all of that, like I think hearing that with, and knowing that there hadn't been a black woman, you know, in this company for like at least thirty years, at least since the nineties, eighties. So I was like, oh my gosh, like this is like huge. Like this is opening the door because like there were black men in this company, you know, Time and time again. But like to see a black woman, like yeah. a, a ballerina, because of like, you know, the standards of like what it means to be feminine, what like there's so many things that ballet upholds in that. Um, and as black women, I think we tend to be um seen as masculine sometimes. Yeah. We see we're seen as harder. We are not able to be soft and fragile when we are soft and fragile and tender and all those things. We in a, too. in addition to straight and strong <laughs> and all of these things, yeah. you know, we're multifaceted. So I think just yeah, like opening that was like, okay happening, and then it was hard I <laughs> you bet. know it was hard because I was the only you know black woman in and the company I was ask, There was no one know, to like, see
1: did you and shoot not even did you have you gotten used to being the only black woman typically in the room?
4: I think when I was younger, yeah, because, but I think you don't notice that you're the only one until uh, it becomes more of a competition thing. Gotcha. And then you start noticing, oh, like, why are things harder for me? Yeah. Why are people expecting me to be like excellent at something, whereas other people can be average? mediocre? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You just said it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's the reality. The you basics. know, I think, you know, as Black people, we have to be excellent at everything we do. Um, when you're the only one because you're not just representing yourself you're representing your whole community Mm -hmm. and so I think I mean I had that enormous pressure on me when I joined the company and I was only 19 years old you know dealing with all of that while also trying to figure out like how do I like navigate being a professional ballet dancer because I mean I'm brand new to this Um, and I think I navigated it pretty well because I had people in the company that were looking out for me that were older. So Mm -hmm. one person in particular, Carl Cruz, he was Afro-Cuban, so still black, but like he um, really mentored me along with his wife, Lindsay Deck. They're both principal dancers. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a few other dancers that just really like took me under their reign and was like, you know, like you have to just like, like kind of separate yourself from all of that and just focus on the dance and just work really hard because at the end of the day, like if you do that, you're going to get to where you need to go because we all see it yeah um and so i think that was really the push we needed um and i think when you are the only one it does make you kind of like it gives you this perspective of like okay well like how do i not become the only one yeah like how, how do I, can I bring more people yeah. in um so once once the protests happened specifically when george floyd was murdered um just the reaction from ballet in general was like there wasn't a lot of reaction mm-hmm. and that really angered me because i was like i'm over here like Putting my body like on the line, like literally working, you know, for the, this company, and they're not even saying anything about it. It's like, what are all these young black little black boys and black girls gonna like? What are they going to think? What are they going to think? Like, yeah, they need to know that they're supported.
1: Well, that and the fact that a lot of times, you know, black people don't even feel welcome coming to the ballet. It's like, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here to even say the audience, let alone you guys not even say anything when something this big is happening. Exactly. Yes.
4: Like all of that. (laughs) So, yeah, I definitely I brought it up with my artistic director, our executive director. I yelled a little bit. But, you know, I will say they listened. They really listened. Um, there are sometimes uncomfortable conversations, but I think like that stuff needs to happen in order for yeah. change to happen. And so, you know, there was a there was just so much that happened in Seattle. You know, when the protests happened, but um, I mean, once we were slowly coming back into ballet because we weren't able to dance during all of that. Sure. You know, we weren't able to even be in studios all together as a company. We were in pods for like like four, just four of us. So were you like, wow? Um, and so sometimes I just like I wouldn't even go I would be like you know I'm not really wanting to go into work like I'm gonna go protest because I'm like this just feels more important to me right now Um, especially like when there's just so much going on but I think at a certain moment I was like okay like how can I still be an activist in the arts like what can I do like in my position to like amplify that and I think by me speaking up Um, by people listening, by people like taking a chance, like now our company is like so diverse, which is, I never thought it would turn like that so quickly.
1: I think it was at about 45 or 50%
4: diverse now. Yeah. Yeah which is like insane because if you saw like what our company was before you would be like oh it's like all lily white (laughs) and like maybe like two people of color
1: and if i'm not mistaken i read that uh pnb recently brought on their first non-binary dancers
4: yeah they have they have uh two non-binary dancers who are incredible i like work with them a lot like choreographing with them um but yeah like there's i just think we're PMB in particular is like very much looking at dance in a way of like, okay, but like, how are we evolving? Like, where Mm -hmm. is dance evolving to that? It really is inclusive to everyone. Yeah. Not just every type of color, every type of uh, gender identity, every type of sexuality, like even like accessibility and like, like things like that. Um, I'm starting to see that happen more so here, which I feel really grateful to be in a company that is doing that. Because if it wasn't, I don't think I would be able to succeed as much as I have.
1: You know what I love about this new generation of ballerinas? It's just like when I interviewed Takiyah Wallace, who is the founder of Black Girls Do Ballet. These black ballerinas these days, they're not having it. They're not letting anyone slide with anything. They're like, look, if you're going to support me, you need to support me. You need to support all the other girls that look like me. You're not just going to have me being this token dancer. Like We're going to make room for all of us. And they're also making changes so shout out to you Amanda and I cannot wait to see what record or what legendary moment that you end up having next Next, you guys, I actually had the opportunity to interview Hill Harper. Okay. And when I interviewed Hill Harper, it was while we were at the Paramount. And that day was so magical. I tell you, you know, doing live uh, uh, shows, it just really gives me anxieties. And, you know, being able to get through that was very, very dope. And I was really proud of myself that day. Now, one dope thing about Hill Harper is that not only is he an author, not only is he an actor, which I'm not sure if the good doctor season is over, but if If it isn't, you should definitely check it out Um, or at least watch the old episodes. Uh, But he has his own digital app and wallet called Black Wall Street. I wanted to get some more tea on it and why he decided to create it. Check out this clip. The Black Wall Street. The Black Wall Street
5: digital app and wallet.
1: Yes, yes, I saw that and it was so interesting to me because I'm always intrigued and like trying to learn more about like Bitcoin and like the whole digital currency. And, you know, we have the metaverse to where your people are literally buying land. And honestly, I think I could be wrong, but I think I was recently at Whole Foods and you were able to pay pay for your food with NFTs now, along with like the palm of your hand. So I would love to know more about your digital... uh, Um, Wallet And what made you actually create that?
5: You know, um, about 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The Wealth Cure, which is about I truly believe that the biggest uh, shame and the biggest problems we have in our country uh, is the racial wealth gap. And if you go back to 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, black people in America held a little less than 1% of American wealth. So coming out of 400 years of slavery, we held one less than 1% of American wealth. Today, in 2022, black people in America hold a little less than 1% of American wealth. So that number has not changed. And so if we really want to have social justice, you can't have social justice without economic justice. And, and we have to solve the economic fragility and poverty issues in our community. If we're going to solve any of the things we want to solve, we want to solve mass incarceration. We want to solve, uh, recidivism. We want to solve, uh, education gaps, health care gaps, all of these big social justice temple things we want to solve. The communities that are hit the hardest by far are communities with poverty and economic fragility. So if we solve the money problem and the jobs and opportunity problem, we also start to solve these other problems. I'll give you an example. Five to 90% of the activities that get young brothers locked up are money-getting activities, right? They're either selling something to get money or they're taking something to get access to money. So if we solve the money problem, opportunity problem, we actually solve the early uh, youth incarceration problem. You know, you can see how these things start to work together. And so I created the Black Wall Street Digital Wallet using blockchain technology and, and burgeoning technology today to disrupt the system of barriers to entry of collecting cross-generational wealth transfer in the black community. And so I, I would hope that anybody watching go download The Black Wall Street. It looks, where's my phone? I have to turn my phone on. It, it's black and purple, and you go in to the App Store, or Google Play, and you download it, and what you'll start to happen is there's a whole bunch of educational videos, all free that talk about cryptocurrency, the metaverse, Bitcoin, but also give you just real financial literacy stuff, needs versus wants, ways to think about budgeting. Um, and we're going to load up, we, we load up new videos all the time. And so if you think about it, um, using the technology that's at our disposal in our hands, in our phones, is the pathway to disrupt the systems that have held us back. So there it is, the black Wall Street, you open it up, and it tells you how much money is in your portfolio, then you have all these educational videos that you go through, and all of this is free. And we're adding new features all the time. It's a challenge though, it's, it's a challenge. The only way this platform wins is folks support, folks downloading the app and using it. And, and I made it free specifically because I believe our community rallies around things that help them. We can help ourselves. I always say we can be our own reparations. And and we can be that because if you think about historically, and the reason why I call it the Black Wall Street is because the communities that were the so-called Black Wall Streets in the late 1800s through the Great Depression and in some cases beyond, not just the Greenwood District in Tulsa, but Bronzeville in Chicago, Paradise Valley, Black Bottom in Detroit, Harlem USA, uh, parts of Atlanta, Wilmington, North Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, Rosewood in Florida, on and on and on. Many communities throughout Virginia and Kentucky, you had vibrant black communities that had three things that created wealth. Ownership, we owned our businesses, we owned our land and we owned our work product. Trust, we trusted each other to transact with each other, And the movement of money within the ecosystem where a dollar would recirculate 60 to 100 times before it left. That was a year to three years. Today, we have $1.6 trillion of spending power in the black community, but it leaves within six to seven hours. And the reason why I launched a digital wallet is we don't start owning our own digital wallets. It'll be leaving within six to seven seconds. Now,
1: what I love about his digital app and wallet is the fact that there are so many people that say we need to have more options for black people to have generational wealth. Not only is he saying it, he's creating an opportunity for it. So shout out to you, Hill Harper. Now, next, I have a clip from my favorite therapist, Ashley McGirt. Now, you know, a lot of times we're always telling black people that we need to go see therapy. But I think it's very important to have the right steps and to know what to ask and how to properly pick the correct therapist for you. So you already know I had to ask Ashley McGirt about that. And I think this clip is perfect timing because it's the top of the year. And I think we all could use a little therapy after dealing with everything that's happened since 2019. Check this clip out, y'all. We always say things like, you know, seek therapy. Black people need to seek therapy. But I feel like a lot of times they don't know where to start. And sometimes people don't know what to ask when they're trying to find that purpose perfect therapist for them? Like, you know, uh, you can have a perfect therapist for you, but doesn't work for me. You know what I'm saying? Right. So do you have any like tips for people in finding that or just asking those right questions? Well, one, knowing that,
6: like you said, there's a the perfect therapist for you. There's the perfect therapist for me. So kind of think of it like dating. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to finding a therapist, you need to find someone who's a good fit for you, someone who you can trust, who you can build that good rapport with. So the very first conversation is really going to be critical. And that's going to be that consultation that you have with the therapist. And it's going to be asking them questions like, hey, um, do you specialize in anxiety? Have you ever worked with Black people before? If you identify as a Black person, have you ever worked with the LGBTQ community? Whatever population it is that you align yourself with, you want to Ask those questions. Whatever it is you're experiencing, you want to ensure that the therapist actually has that training. So many people reach out to me for couples counseling. I am not a relationship therapist. I am the wrong person to come to, so I have to refer out. But asking those questions because some clinicians may try knowing that they're not a couples counselor and sit there and try to actually help you through that. And you, yeah, and you never actually ask them, like, is this something you've done? Have you ever helped couples before. And me, I'll tell you, no, I've never done couples counseling ever. Um, because I knew that that wasn't an area that I didn't want to focus in. So, um, but asking those questions, um, looking into their background, verifying their license. You can go to the Department of Health and you can type in a name. You could type in my name, Ashley McGirt. Um, if that's all the information that you have and it'll show you, when did I first receive my license? Do I have any complaints on my license? Which that is extremely important if someone actually has a founded complaint that's been on their license. That means they've caused some sort of harm. There was some sort of complaint and it actually takes a lot for you to actually have a founded complaint because anybody could say anything about me if they yeah. want to say anything about you. The state is going to do their due diligence to actually make sure that the complaint is founded. So that
1: means it's verified, like right. you did that.
6: <laughs> right. And you can see that and also ensure like, is it active? You know, are they an associate clinician? Because in order to become a fully independent licensed therapist, whether it's a licensed marriage family therapist, a licensed independent clinical social worker, which is what I am, you need to ask some point be an associate, which that means you're operating under a supervisor. So there's a a licensed clinician above you um, who is monitoring you, making sure that you're doing the work. If that's the case, you want to look into who is their supervisor? What is their supervisor's background? How often do they meet with their supervisor? Are they sharing that information? Because if they're an associate level clinician, that means that your conversation is not just between you and them because they actually have to go back and share that with their supervisor. So these are some of the things. That's a little deeper, you know, license. And then also recognize that there is bias in the licensing process, especially when it comes to black clinicians. It's a very difficult test. Thankfully, I'm a good test taker and I was able to pass my first go around, but that is not the case for most people of color because the way that it's set up, it's set up for white clinicians. It asks things about, um, Certain behaviors that might not necessarily show up in communities of color. Gosh. So you have to be able to know how to navigate that. It's a very intense process. 4,000 clinical hours in most states. <laughs> 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 yeah. Washington and California have like the, the most amount of hours. And I think Hawaii is up there as well. Um, so just looking into that. And again, just having a conversation with them, most therapists offer at least a free 15 minute consultation. And you can find out a lot about a person. Are you laughing? Like, do you, do you feel a good vibe? What's the energy? And just remember, don't give up. Cause it's like, again, it's like dating. You gotta sometimes date multiple people until you find the one. You have to see multiple therapists until you get
1: the thing that you need. I think that's a huge point because I feel like a lot of times, especially people of color, you know, we'll go to therapy. We'll go like one or two times. We don't like that therapy. We die. We, die. <laughs> we might if someone convinces us see a different therapist. But usually, you'll see that one therapist, and you're like, "Oh, this is what therapy is like. I don't like that." And it's like everyone has their own style, and so you you really you do have to kind of think of it like dating. I never thought of it that way, yeah. but you have to keep going around until you find the one and be okay with letting the therapist go and be like, "Your style isn't working for me." Yes.
6: And speak up because nine times out of 10, you're paying for it, whether you're paying out of pocket or you're using your insurance benefits that you're paying for through your employer or a spouse or whatever the case, we know how that works, but it's something you're invested in. So you need to speak up and say like, hey, um, I would like to focus on this during my session. You have the power to do that. I let my clients know, like, let me know if I'm talking too fast. If I'm focusing on an area that maybe you want to talk on something different this week. What are your goals? I'm a solution focused therapist. So I'm always looking at what is the solution? How do we fix the problem? If you want to just vent, fine. We can create space for that, too. But at the end of the day, I'm always looking at what's the end goal. How can I graduate you out of my session so that you don't have to come here every week or get you down to maybe once a month or quarterly,
1: something like that? Let me tell you something. 2023, we're getting therapists. We're in the gym and we're not just in the gym a couple months before your birthday. (laughs) Or right before summer, like we we really got to work on changing our lifestyles and making our soft life actually soft. And, you know, sometimes your life can become and and if you don't know what soft life is, child, go on. Go on TikTok and look it up. It'll make more sense there. Either way, you know, sometimes having a softer life is actually having someone to talk to and help you work with your mental issues that you just frankly don't know what to deal with or different um, childhood trauma that you haven't dealt with. Heck, I got a lot of trauma that I forgot about and every once in a while it comes back up and I'm always so confused about it. So now if you don't have a therapist, I definitely suggest you save this video. That way you can take some notes and find yourself an amazing therapist. And if you know someone that's looking for one but doesn't know where to start... I also suggest sharing this video with them. Now, our last clip is going to be by Nate Jackson. Oh my goodness. You know, what I actually really enjoyed about Nate Jackson is that When he became a comedian, it wasn't something that he actually planned on doing initially. You know, it it literally was a bet that turned into a whole new life. Like, like his career is like his life. Like, he's literally just hilarious. Like, when I tell you I was cackling in here, I was cackling. Okay, so in this particular clip, I asked Nate Jackson about what made him move to LA. You know, what was his biggest moment in LA, and also how he got Um, so. How did that come about? Like, because here's my thing. Mm -hmm always knew that i wanted to kind of like just be in radio at some point right but it almost sounds like maybe comedy wasn't what you planned on doing but it just made sense after you did that that comedy show or the competition literally literally
0: just like that wow so i was like okay i'm gonna be an aeronautical engineer right so i went to florida memorial college in miami with full ride then I transferred into Washington State University, and then I transferred to Eastern Washington University because they still had computer science of mm-hmm. the major that, that I wanted, excuse me. So then I transferred to Eastern Washington University, and I'm like, bet. And then I was there probably three weeks, and the way Eastern was set up is we would all meet in the middle of the campus on the, at the pub. And, I mean, if you had classes... There was two hours after your classes where you would be in the put. I'm talking like all the black kids at the whole school Just living
1: life. What?
0: Roasting, <laughs> eating, clowning, figuring out what's going on for the weekend. And there was this one little one little dude, right? John Fowler.
1: John Fowler. John
0: Fowler, right? He was the like one that the,
1: started it all.
0: He was an awkward little white guy. He looked kinda like Harry Potter. And um he had been doing comedy on the low, like during Christmas breaks, during vacations, Thanksgiving break. So he was doing stand-up already in Seattle, like giggles and the underground and things like that. Uh-huh. I'm just roasting, Mind clowning, snapping on people. And he was like, dude, if there was a comedy competition, would you do it? And I'm like, who's in it? He's like, people from here. I'm like, yeah, and I'll probably win. <laughs> He's like, okay, we'll turn around and look at that banner behind you, right? Now, I had came up the stairs. So the he gave was you on a full-on setup. full ba- setup.
5: Full-on set full I turn around. It's
0: like student-only comedy competition Wednesday. I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) literally, oh my God. I'm like, I got to write some jokes. (laughs) So we were allowed to have a three by five card in our hands. And there was like maybe 16 people that did this comedy show. Uh And I lost only to John Fowler. So I was like, I might be on to something because he'd been doing comedy for a while. yeah. And he was like, you're definitely on to something. That's why I dared you to do it. I saw potential. I'm like, okay. Come
1: on, John Fowler. That part.
0: So then I just I just kind of stuck with it, started finding out the comedy scene in Spokane, hitting the Brick Wall Comedy Club down there and doing one-nighters. And then the, the owner of the comedy club started sending me out around eastern Washington where I was like, my first road gig was Walla Walla, Washington. What? In the middle of nowhere, okay? Uh,
1: tell me about it. I've but been... we
0: went six cars deep. So it was like half the crowd was us and half the crowd was whatever Walla Walla had brought up. It was lit. And um, so I just stuck with it. And I did some more research. I talked to more veteran comics, got a couple mentors in it, and found out that it's actually, you know, show business. I was just enamored by the lights. And I realized there's actually some chips in it if you do it right.
1: I love it. Now, when did you realize that you had to leave Washington and go to L.A.? Uh,
0: I knew before I graduated, Mm -hmm. but I was not sure. And um, this is why it's so important to have, like, phenomenal I'll say it: phenomenal African-American representation on campuses to help guide the young African-American students Mm. because they saw me get bit by the comedy bug. They knew I was a, you know, a very, very good graded student and I could stay in the system and go on and get more degrees. Or they even offered me a job as African-American student recruiter. And I talked to Rodney Perry. He's an OG comic. If you guys are familiar with with comedy for real, if you're a connoisseur, then, you know, Rodney Perry. And uh, Rodney said, listen, man, L.A. is always going to be there. But so is that job if the lady says so. So go talk to whoever offered you the job and see if they'll let you take a crack at L.A. And if it doesn't work, you can always run home. And so I talked to Nancy Nelson, Dr. Nancy Nelson, bless her heart. She is still with us, but I just want to say bless her heart. And she said, yeah, I'll hold the job for you. Take a crack at L.A. I see you're passionate about comedy. And I went down there and just started roughing it.
1: I freaking love that, because it's like, I think there are so many times where we have like a spark, and people just don't take that chance, right? Mm. It's like doing the job with, what'd you say her name was, Nancy?
0: Nancy Nelson.
1: Taking that job would have been the safe route, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it would have been guaranteed money. It would have been like a guaranteed salary that you probably would have been able to retire some years later with like a full-on pension. And you were like, you know what? I'm- hold <laughs> right put a pin in it as me and my friends it doesn't work out fine but you would be in this moment had you have not taken that leap like did you do any manifestations before you went down to la like did you have like a full-on blueprint to where it was like this like is gonna a vision work board? yeah let
0: me tell you something no <laughs> what do you mean i'm young black gifted i'm out of here peace 600 dollars <laughs> in my pocket 17-hour drive. I got family down there. I'm going to live with my older cousin. It is what it is. I'm thinking I'm in the heart of it. I get down there. I'm an hour away from Hollywood, even though that's still L.A. area. Yeah. And that's what we take for granted here when people be like, he ain't from Tacoma," I'm like, it's 20 minutes. Do you realize Houston is like three hours across just from one side of Houston to the next side of Houston? Yeah. they be mad over uh, five exits. So... I got down there thinking I'm about to be in the heart of it. I'm Did in the you mix.
1: you say they'd be mad over five exits?
0: Five exits. <laughs> I had a 48 minute if I was smashing drive from where I was at into where all the clubs were in Hollywood. And I would work from nine to five. And then I would have my butt in by seven. I'd grab something to eat on the way. And then I'd be out. And the thing about when you're a young comic in L.A., you may not even get spots. Yeah. But you got to hang out. Mm-hmm. And the hangout is everything because if you do get a spot and other comics see you, they have rooms too. They're like, yo, I got a room out in kind of out there by where you are. Mm-hmm. You should come do that. Or you, I got a room in such and such. And now you work in three, four or five nights a week doing five and six shows. So
1: you guys call it
0: rooms. Yeah, if, so it's a, it's a, it's a night of mm-hmm. comedy. If somebody, let's just say you want to start a comedy night. Mm-hmm. So you go down to X stadium and you're like, it's basically presents, um, laugh out loud Tuesdays. Mm-hmm. That's a room.
1: Gotcha you don't,
0: it's not it's not it's not uh full time five shows a weekend national headliner deal it's just a room gotcha okay um then the next level up is comedy clubs mm-hmm. right because they have consistent it's it's a place for that that's not x stadium's main vision of what they are mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying so. Everybody has rooms, whether it's in a coffee shop or it's in a tea house or it's in a a little theater. Maybe some people get dope rooms, Mm -hmm. but it's still a room. I had a room on a Thursday night. That's what I stopped the 12 rooms and did the one. And so the hangout is necessary because you got to know everybody. It's a huge camaraderie. Doctors, no doctors. Football players, no football players. And comics, no comics.
1: The networking.
0: That's what I'm saying. And that was exhausting because I would have to hang out till one in the morning and get back out there. An, well, about an hour back because I wouldn't be smashing on the way home and then do the next day all over again.
1: What would you say was like your most memorable break when you first went to L.A.?
0: Um, a memorable break. I don't know about a break, but I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you when I was like, yo, this is crazy! Like I have a new perspective of what's popping." So before I went to LA, I came back to this side of the mountains where my my people are, mm-hmm. my parents and all that. And I was gigging over here doing shows in Lacey, Olympia, Tacoma, Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I had I I was the new guy. I'm like, yo, I got a dope thirty minutes. I'm shooting a DVD. I'm making a special. And I paid I paid um uh Giorgio from here, and we shot a special at Columbia City Theater. Nice. Yes and it was my best work at the time mind you hindsight being 2020 it wasn't good comedy okay there was some gems in there but it needed to be be sifted more and i had been working it yeah but i didn't know it was it was it was excellent for washington Mm -hmm. and it was just enough to get me by in hollywood
1: Hey, that's interesting. I like that. It was excellent for Washington. Yeah. So would you say that our comedy standards are different than in like in L.A.? Or do you think that our standards in general are just different?
3: It's
0: it's just different. It's a different playing field, right? So here, if you're killing it, people say you're ready for L.A. Mm-hmm. In L.A., if you're killing it, they say you're ready for stardom. Mm. You get what I'm saying? So this is a perspective I had. I went down to L.A. and I went to No Better Mondays. It's the blackest comedy night that Hollywood has. D. Ray Davis is the host. It's on Mondays. Big Spike, who acts like his name sounds, is the producer of the show. I walk up to him. I'm a young, uh, you know, just just gifted and, and full of Hope comic with my little DVD, fully packaged, and I give it to him, I'm like, hey man, I just shot a special and I just wanna know if I can get down here. Yeah. He takes my DVD and he tosses it, like it's trash. I nut up, like, hey, excuse me, Phil like, Didn't even know I had it in me to be like that, but he threw my heart, right? He failed he, it. Oh, I was like, the, like, I was in it, I was, I was nose to his chest, like, oh, it's going like, down, I, man. Like, you I was so mad. He was like, go over there and wait with the rest of the comics. Yeah. If you're ready, I'll see if you're ready. Right. And it's dark before the show starts. They bring the lights up and D-Ray comes out. They turn the lights. And at the, at the way that the improv used to be set up is all the comics could stand against the right side. Like when you walk in the showroom, it's shaped like a square and you can stand against the right wall. Uh-huh. So the lights come up and I just follow where he pointed. I'm like, let me just go over here and stand with all these bums. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. The lights come up. It's Lou Nell, Red Grant, Cat Williams, Two ray They aren't on the show. They're just hanging out to where if somebody don't show up or somebody's late or somebody bombing, Spike Cat kill that shit. Shut up. Lunell, rock out. Now, here I am with my little DVD that I done picked up. He cracked the corner of it. I put it in my hoodie pocket. And I stood over there, and them lights came up, and I saw the silhouettes of all the people that I had been watching on Comic View and on all the different comedy specials that are taped. And I was like, it's going to be a minute. This is going to be a minute. And that's the difference between LA and Seattle. If I walked into a room at that point in Seattle, I probably generated some whispers like, oh, Nate's here, the dude from Spokane, or oh, the funny guy from. Yeah. Get walking in LA, it's Pump a whole nother, What? So I was at least a medium sized fish in a small pond. And down there, I was a. Uh, like a guppy. What? <laughs> a fish egg in the ocean, okay? And that's the difference, and that's the perspective that I gained from it. But Spike, actually, I went up, he put me up. He's like, do three minutes, not that night. It was like a month of nights later, and I went up and I did three minutes. I was expecting, you know, real time, 15 minutes, because that's how long the spots are here. Yeah. I'm like, three minutes? And I go up and I do the, my best jokes I got in them three minutes. I probably fit two of my funniest bits in three. Uh
1: uh-huh.
0: A closer and a closer, light comes on, I bail. He's like, come back next Monday. I come back next Monday. He's like, do five minutes. So I'm up there for five. Now I do three jokes. I'm up there for five minutes. The light don't come on. I get off in five minutes. Uh huh. He's like, if I don't like you, that means keep going. I want to see what you got. I'm like, I'm not going to disrespect your room. I thought maybe I missed the yeah. light. He was like, all right, come like, back in a month. Directions? So then a month later, I come back. Now, at this point, other comics are noticing like, yo, Spike's got him in the system. Like, Spike is trying to see what this kid yeah. has. And I'm rocking. Cause I had a half hour. And I'm still okay. working Washington half hour.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Take what's good enough for Hollywood and there was maybe eight, nine minutes in that. But because of the nature of Hollywood and how fast showcase spots are, there was nothing more than the five minute spots. Yeah. So I was just going around killing all the little five minute spots. Look. Making a name for myself. And cutting all of the, everything else out and making new material and fixing the old material that it was up to par. Like yeah. it had to be rapid, pow, 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 pow. Like how you gonna go up and you want a show with Tony Roberts and Red Grant and Chris Spencer and, and you up there playing around. Period. And the wall is full of people who want that time and will stab you for it. That part. So that's the difference between the two places. Yeah.
1: Alrighty, that is it for today's episode of Rewind with Besa. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you enjoyed some of my favorite memories. If you have any favorite memories from Rewind with Besa, definitely drop them below. And if there's anyone that you would like to see on Rewind with Besa this year, drop a comment and let me know who I should have on upcoming episodes because I have a lot planned this year for not only Rewind with Besa but just some really, really dope new content for you guys. So definitely stay tuned for that. In the meantime, between time, you already know what I'm going to say. Have an amazing rest of your day. And of course, keep that energy high.